Hello everyone and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, I'm editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Tom Bailey in the 2002 film Love Liza, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing very good, David. You know, uh, Tom Bailey, uh, Love Liza, that's... <laughs> That was a pretty grim film, as I recall. It was about gasoline sniffing. Yes, yes. It That's was a, a, uh, a 2002 film directed by Todd Luiso, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Uh, Todd Luiso was a wonderful director. There was one curious thing about the movie is we went to shoot part of that film on location in Mobile, Alabama. And you can go back and listen to the Tobolowsky files to uh, The World Is Not What It Used To Be. Episode 20, and you will hear some of the uh, adventures I had uh, shooting Love, Liza. It was great working with Philip Seymour Hoffman. That was wonderful. He's such a good actor. It's always good, David, working with as good a people as you could work with. That's why I love working with you. <laughs> I sense a tinge of sarcasm there, Stephen, but no I'm going to choose to. No sarcasm, sir. None at all. <laughs> well, uh, Stephen, when we last left off... On episode 55, The True Arena, you were on the verge of professional ruination. And contrary to popular opinion, it was not because you were about to take a starring role on ABC's Work It. It was, in <laughs> fact, because you had been offered a role in a Broadway play. Isn't that correct? Yes, David. Uh, you could say I received an offer that an actor couldn't refuse. It was in 2001, and Lincoln Center was going to fly me to New York, if you recall, to audition for a great role in a great play with a great director. They would pay for my hotel, and if I got the part, they would cover the expense of a two-bedroom apartment for me near Central Park. So far, so good, right? I mean, how could I possibly say no? It's an actor's dream come true. But I hesitated. Truthfully, I had gotten suspicious of my dreams long before this. I wasn't sure they had my best interests at heart. And it's not my dream's fault. They grew up in a very sheltered environment raised far away from anything that resembled reality. My dreams of being an actor had humble beginnings. When I was five, I thought if I were an actor, I could spend time with monsters. Real ones, like Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mummy. I thought Godzilla could teach me how to breathe fire, and the creature of the Black Lagoon could teach me how to hold my breath underwater for a very long time. My dream of being an actor was a practical one. I thought it meant I could expand my rather limited set of abilities. Then when I was ten, the dream changed. I thought acting could get me notoriety. I had already been in a production of Hansel and Gretel, I had to kiss Marsha Housewright on the forehead and feed her a strawberry. For my efforts, I won second best actor in the Pee Wee division. My Aunt Esther accepted my ribbon. The award ceremony was past my bedtime, so Mom had to take me home. I faithfully watched the Academy Awards, the Tony Awards on television. I memorized the winner's acceptance speeches. I practiced them in the shower. Then I began to extemporize. I made up entire productions where I was the star. If Charlton Heston could win for the Ten Commandments, then what would the world think of me when I starred in the Torah? My movie was going to be much longer than his, and it had so many more laws. I used to walk to school every day. It took about 20 minutes, and I loved my walks. I practiced speeches from movies I made up in my head on the walk. 
They were pirate movies and dinosaur movies, war movies. Sometimes I got carried away and started acting them out along the side of the road. I would pick up two sticks and pretend they were swords and begin to fight myself up and down Keese Boulevard. (laughs) Motorists would slow down and watch. Now I realize they probably thought I was having some sort of psychiatric problem. But back then, I imagined they were taken with my performances. I was in our backyard in the middle of one of my movies about claim jumping in Alaska. I was playing a dual role. I was the hero and the backstabbing double-crosser who wanted to steal my girl and my gold. I attacked me from behind, and we rolled over and over myself in the yard. The bad me started to strangle the good me. I had one hand on my throat while I tried to push myself away with my other hand. I was about to fall down a mine shaft when I looked up and Mom was watching me from the patio. She had a troubled look on her face. She said, Stephen, what are you doing? I said, I'm making movies, Mom. Mom shook her head and said, well, supper's on the table. Why don't you come in before it gets cold? I said, okay, I'll be right in. And then I continued strangling myself. Mom went into the house. Through my teen years, I entered acting contests hoping to win medals and trophies. And I won a lot. Most of them are still sitting in a linen closet in Dallas. I just gave my family the go-ahead to throw them away in a dumpster. In college, my dream changed. I loved acting because I thought it was noble. Don't laugh. (laughs) I did. I'm not sure I could tell you what was noble about it, but it was something I believed in passionately. Maybe, maybe it was having my first real experience with Shakespeare. Through his words, I was overwhelmed with humanity. Then I encountered Ibsen and Chekhov and Shaw. They weren't bad either, and I thought it was a trend, so I jumped on the train. The dream of acting stopped its development there. After that, acting became a matter of paying the bills in one way or another. That's a shallow grave for such a long journey. Now the dream was resurrected again by Lincoln Center. I had the chance to work on a beautiful and elevating piece of writing, a chance to win awards, And in New York, there's always the chance of meeting monsters. Back to my hesitation on Lincoln Center's offer. I know wonderful things happen in life, but they usually seem to happen by chance. In business, when someone is promising paradise, I've learned to look for the exploding vest. My agent told me what the catch was the next day. If I accepted the plane ticket to fly to New York for the audition... I had to accept the job if they wanted me. No second thoughts, no thanks, but no thanks. I was in. My salary would be $1,500 a week. It sounds like a lot, but it's not when you remove 60% off the top for agents and Uncle Sam. And then there were pesky things like house payments, school tuition, phone bills, human food, cat food, rabbit food, and worms for the turtle. I figured out I had already spent $5,000 on worms for Tugger over the last decade. And the reptile book said he could live for another 100 years. And calculated that if I did the play and it was a success, it would wipe out our entire savings in a year's time. This is exactly why I'm not on speaking terms with my dreams. So, how do we make the most important decisions in our lives? The people we fall in love with, the professions we choose, the cities we live in. 
Usually, we look carefully at the pros and cons. We weigh all of the available options in terms of how they would impact our lives, and then we say, screw it, I'm doing this anyway. That's what I did. I picked up the phone and said I would audition, and it was done. They faxed me two scenes they wanted me to perform. I already knew these scenes by heart because I directed the play a few months earlier. Despite the fact I knew the material, I still felt compelled to walk around our neighborhood reciting the lines into space. One cold, rainy day, I walked to the park and sat on a wet bench. A wind swept under me and carried some dead leaves around my feet and out onto the grassy area that doubles as a soccer field and dog latrine. I watched the leaves as they moved, and they stayed together as they whirled in space, as if they were guided by some unseen hand. It's easy to see patterns everywhere when you're at a crossroads in your life. Even the leaves seemed to suggest that I was a part of a bigger picture. I had the tickets. I knew the part. The only thing I was uncertain about was whether this was a trip I wanted to take. My dream kept kicking me and telling me, hey, this is a no-brainer. But I don't have to tell parents out there that every day you miss seeing your child is a day you can never get back. When they're grown, they're gone. The day of reckoning arrived with a limo. I kissed Anne goodbye. A part of me felt like I was betraying her. Part of me felt like this was something I had to do. Neither was true. I studied the script on the plane. Occasionally I nodded off and dreamt I was studying the script. I arrived in New York, and another car took me to the hotel. I made the journey from Kennedy Airport to Manhattan dozens of times in the past. But now I was seeing the city in a new way. Would this be my new home? The hotel was a hotel. My window looked out onto the rooftops and water towers of other hotels. There were no surprises, except one. I had a real clock on my bedside table. Just seeing a real clock with a dial and hands gave me comfort that the city had a heart after all. In recent years, real clocks have been phased out in favor of the combo digital clock AM, FM, radio, CD player, iPod dock. These devices only seem to exist in hotels. You can't buy them anywhere, not even at Walmart. They are the final stage of an evolutionary trail that leads to incomprehensibility. They're about the size of a loaf of bread, made of molded black plastic and covered with buttons and switches and dials, all of which are unmarked. They do wake you up, usually at three in the morning with salsa music. You spend the next ten minutes trying to find the off switch until you give up and just unplug it, or you throw it. Once in Canada, I got so mad at mine, I shut it in the hall closet for a timeout. My audition was at 11 o'clock the next morning. My flight back to Los Angeles was the morning after. The length of my stay was set by Lincoln Center. Dan Sullivan, the director of the play, and Andre Bishop, the producer, wanted me in New York a whole day in case they needed to see me again for callbacks in the afternoon. My agent said, hey, look at the bright side. If you don't get the part, you have a free day in the city. You could go see a show or go out on the town or just commit suicide. That evening, I went out to dinner with my old SMU theater classmate, Greg. He was thrilled I had the audition. He was telling me it was a win-win situation as to whether I got the job or not. 
in that I had already conned Lincoln Center out of a hotel room for a couple nights. A word about Greg. I've noticed people like to introduce their friends to strangers by saying things like, they are a very old soul. That's not Greg. Greg is a very good soul. I don't know how he arrived at that place, being an actor, always being in financial straits, always trying to balance the dream with necessity, but he's done it. Greg is proof that goodness is real and that occasionally it has a Texas accent. We had Vietnamese food at a small restaurant on the Upper West Side. Greg told me he was working on a project with the great writer Horton Foote. It sounded exciting. In show business, exciting usually means for free. So he also was working at several other less exciting jobs to keep his dream afloat. Again, I thought about the cost of purchasing our dreams. You never see the price tag when you take it from the store. I told him I had to make an early night of it. I had to pretend to go to bed so I could pretend to sleep. I asked how long he thought it would take for me to walk from the hotel to Lincoln Center. Greg looked at me. His face broke into a huge grin, and he did a minor calculation in his head. He said, well, if you walk slowly, it'd take you about 10 minutes. 15 if you stopped at Starbucks first. You're only about three blocks away. Greg leaned in and spoke confidentially. Don't worry, Tobo. You're going to get the part. I said, you think? Greg nodded. Positive. It's not that you're so good. It's that everyone else is so bad. Besides, you have something going for you that none of the others do. What, I asked. Greg chuckled. If you get it, it'll totally screw up your life. And I found that God always appreciates a good joke. The next morning, I woke up bright and early, around 4 a.m. I tried to go back to sleep. Failed. I rehearsed my over-rehearsed scenes one more time. I finally got back to sleep just as the city was beginning to wake up. At six, I figured it was hopeless. I got out of bed. I showered. I got dressed for my audition, which was only five hours from now. Long enough to sit through Yom Kippur services or to fly to London. I walked around the hotel. I read the paper. I watched Sports Center. I ate breakfast. I called Anne. Hey, I figured she had to be up at dawn anyway. She told me to remember to have fun. If they didn't want me, it meant they had bad taste and the production was doomed. I love that rationale. It not only made me feel special, but it explained why bad taste was so prevalent. I left for Lincoln Center at 10 a.m., I stopped at Starbucks on the way. It was packed. Every chair, sofa, and table had been converted into office space. It appeared that most of the customers were working on screenplays. I couldn't find a place to sit down. Another unfortunate side effect of people pursuing their dreams. I wandered down the street with my Americano. I followed my instructions to Lincoln Center. Well, check that. Under Lincoln Center. I was to use the entrance in the garage. I walked up to the security guard's window. I showed him my photo ID. I told the man I was here for an audition. The guard checked his book. You are Stephen Taba, Taba. I helped him out. Tabalowski. He double-checked the entry and said through the slot in the bulletproof glass, Your audition isn't until 11. I know, I said. I got here early. He said, Well, you're going down to level C. That's lower basement. 
I said, that sounds about right. He pointed to a stairway. You head over there, you go down, and you just keep going down till you can't go down any further. I thanked him and headed off like Jules Verne in search of the center of the earth. The second sub-basement was made of cinder blocks and concrete. It looked more like a bomb shelter than a theater space. In a curious waste of money, someone tried to doll up the area by painting purple stripes on one of the walls, so now it looked like a fallout shelter in Wonderland. There was a little card table in the corner with a coffee pot on it. That meant that human beings must have existed here at one point in time. I stared at the coffee pot. It began to make me unbearably happy. History was attached to it. Probably hundreds of actors from Patti Lapone to Barbara Cook to Raul Julia to Elaine Stritch had used that very coffee pot or one just like it. The history of theater would have been totally different without caffeine and alcohol. I sat alone. After an eternity of silence, probably 45 seconds, I wandered into one of the empty rehearsal rooms. My footsteps had echoes. I walked around. I felt the space. I tried out a few lines. I wandered out of the room just as a giant man with a long, undistinguished beard came strolling around the hallway. He looked like a trapper from the French-Indian Wars. When he saw me, his face lit up like sparkler candles on a birthday cake. Stephen? Hello. Dan Sullivan. He wasn't a fur trapper at all. He was the director. I liked him immediately. We shook hands. You're punctual, he said. Well, Dan, I was up early. Dan laughed. Jet lag? That, I said, were sheer terror. Dan shrugged his shoulders and scratched his beard. I can't believe you get nervous for auditions anymore. I do, Dan. I do. Uh, But I think in this case it isn't the play. It's the venue. Andre Bishop came down the hallway. He looked exactly like I would cast the head of a giant New York theater concern. Horn-rimmed glasses, scarf, sensible shoes. He was very pleasant. He asked me if my flight and the hotel room were good. I told him they were perfect. Dan asked me if I wanted a little more time. I said, God, no. We wandered into one of the rooms. I read two scenes with a casting assistant at the theater. He played Myrtle. He was very sincere. I thought the audition went relatively well. Andre and Dan shook my hand, and I left. I headed back to the hotel. On the ten-minute walk back, I tried to psych myself up for round two if they called me back after lunch. I was exhausted. So, I thought I would catch a little nap, get a little food, coffee, and reboot. I walked into my room, and the red message light was blinking. I picked up the phone. I hit the button. It was my agent screaming, You did it! You got the part! Congratulations! You're on Broadway, man! Call me! I didn't. Not yet. I sat on the bed and called Anne. I told her the news. There was a long silence on the line. She said, I'm so happy for you. This will be a great adventure. Great adventure. I said, I hope so, baby. She said, we'll make it work. I'll visit you a lot. I'll bring the boys. We'll make it work. I continued talking to Anne, small talk, about Starbucks, about the audition. I fell back on the bed and numbly grabbed for the remote. I turned on the set. As we talked about the future, I watched the repeat of Sports Center from this morning. 
and the thought crossed my mind that one of the biggest problems with having a dream come true is that it's hard to recognize it when it arrives. I haven't felt your hands in a long time Haven't said your name in a week My best intentions are clogging the drain pipes My integrity is bringing a leak But don't you know it's all over And don't you know it's all I slept like a dead man for about three hours. I woke up. It was late afternoon. I was in New York City. And like a fairy tale, I had been transformed while I slept. Now I was a working actor. I was going to be opening on Broadway in a matter of weeks. It was the dream of so many actors all over the world. It was the dream of mine since I got my butt kicked in 1982, also known as the last time I was on Broadway. I was in my girlfriend Beth's play, The Wake of Jamie Foster, for three weeks at the Eugene O'Neill Theater before we closed. Well, that isn't exactly true. I was in The Wake for several years, if you count looking over all the early versions of Beth's scripts, if you count all of the readings we did at our home for friends and potential producers and directors, if you count the breakfasts, lunches, and dinners where we talked about the play, the nights we dreamt about the play, the auditions with New York director Ulu Grosbart, the months of rehearsing and performing the play in our enormously successful tryout in Hartford, Connecticut before we came to New York. We were so passionate about the play, so certain of its success, we signed an eight-month lease on an apartment and opened up a bank account on Columbus Avenue. Then there was opening night, and the New York Times, and it was done. The prevailing theory put forth in 60s folk music is that we always cling to our dreams. I don't think that's true. I think we cling to our hurt. We seek remedies. And the remedies are often mistaken for our dreams. The real cures for our injuries are hard to find. Some try therapy, some try oblivion. I've tried both and can say without reservation the most effective of them all is success. Succeeding in anything can heal a wounded spirit, even making oatmeal well. But succeeding in what you failed at before can make you feel downright immortal. Whether or not I thought I was ready to take the Big Apple on again, it was on. My name was in the program. I decided to go out and get some dinner as the new me. I had a new path, a new address. I would soon be a true New Yorker, a man with a tenuous job with a wife and family thousands of miles away. The city looked completely different than it did this morning. It was no longer large and unfriendly a place that had no room for me, not even at Starbucks. As I walked out of the hotel toward Lincoln Center, I was a legitimate part of the streets and the noise and the ambition. I had become one of the stories New York loves to tell. I headed for one of my favorite restaurants on the Upper West Side, Fiorello's. All of the old waiters remembered me from previous visits in the years past. I played the actor card without shame. I told them about my audition that morning. The result? A glass of wine on the house. 
I unleash some stories about shooting Seinfeld. A dessert, compliments of the chef. Yeah, it was embarrassing, but I rationalized it as my only hedge against the rising costs of eating out in New York City. I headed down the street after dinner. I was excited and exhausted. I couldn't decide if I wanted to go to sleep or to party all night. I called Greg. He said he was leaving the city for the weekend to work on his Horton Foot project. So I decided I would go out alone. I would hit a random bar, have a drink to celebrate, and then head back to the hotel, pack for my trip home in the morning. I used a calculus I'd used in the old days when I wanted to get into trouble. I walked into the loudest place I could find on my side of the street. The bar I went to had no design element at all. It looked like a furnished part of the sidewalk. It was jammed with men and women in their late 20s and early 30s. Everyone wore blue jeans and leather jackets. The outfit that says, I'm cool, but I'm lonely. The bar was playing Cuban music at a decibel level that shook my skeleton with every whack of the conga drum. I kept with the Latin theme and ordered a margarita to kill the pain. While I was waiting for my drink, a woman wearing thick black framed glasses pushed her way through the crowd with her girlfriend. She grabbed me by the arm and shouted, Excuse me, aren't you that guy? I said I wasn't sure, but I suspected I was. She said, You are the insurance salesman from Groundhog Day. I told her that she was correct. She screamed. She jumped up and down. She pulled me down to her level, gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. Her friend said, really? This guy's in movies? Black framed glasses says, yeah, he's famous. This guy? Her friend looked me over from head to toe, then stared at me in disbelief and said, no way. I was insulted and said, way? She walked closer to me and started yelling in my ear. Then can I kiss you too? Just in case I found out later you're telling the truth? It was a challenging moment. It's hard to deal with ethics when you've been neutralized by people who are willing to kiss you. I said yes. Several times in my life, I found it difficult to distinguish the road to hell from the Upper West Side. The bartender shouted that my drink was ready. I grabbed it, paid him, threw a dollar tip down on the soaking wet bar for him, and started sipping madly at my tequila. Miss Black Frame Glasses told me she was an eighth-grade biology teacher. She wanted to blow off some steam tonight after grading papers all afternoon before she went to her night job. I asked what she did in the evening. She said she was a lap dancer at a club called Numbers. She asked me if I had ever had a lap dance. I told her I hadn't. She asked me if I knew what a lap dance was. I told her, yes, yes, I did. A lap dance is one of the few things in life in which the name is all the description you need, like someone who plays third base. She said she had studied dance in high school. She came to New York from Indiana. She thought she would try out for a modern dance jazz company, but she wasn't good enough. Not even close. Lap dancing seemed like a good way to keep in shape and to make a little extra money to boot. She said she kept it clean. She thought of herself more like a pole dancer, but without the pole. I avoided any further references to poles and asked if the school knew about her night job. She said they didn't. She said she would probably get fired if anyone found out. I asked her girlfriend if she was a lap dancer as well. She wasn't. She said she was thinking about it, but right now she was in communications. 
Black frame glasses yelled up in the direction of my ear. Why don't we get out of this place? I know a bar down the street that's happening. I shouted back, I thought this bar was happening. No, she said. This bar is just loud. There's a difference. I left with black frame glasses and her friend. We cleared the orbit of the Cuban bar and the cold night air surrounded us. It was a wonderful slap in the face. Black frame glasses told me her name was Lizzie. I reintroduced myself. I shook her hand. It's a pleasure to meet you, Lizzie. You, you know, that's interesting. What's interesting, Lizzie asked. Well, your name, it's short for Elizabeth, I said. She looked at me oddly and shook her head. No, I don't think so. Lizzie is short for Liz. My real name is Liz. I said, right, right. Well, anyway, my old girlfriend's name was Elizabeth, and we used to live on an apartment right down this street. We walked toward 68th Street and Columbus Avenue. My ears were in the mid-stage of decompression. The ringing was gone, and I was finally able to hear the sirens in the distance again. I asked Lizzie why she went to the Cuban bar if it wasn't happening. She said she didn't feel like she was happening tonight either, and she didn't want the stress of going to a happening bar if she wasn't. But now she found a movie star. She was happening again. She asked me if I was married. I told her I was and had two boys. I asked her if she was in a relationship. She said she was still looking. I asked if being a lap dancer made it hard for her to find anyone to date. She looked puzzled and said, why? I said, well, I think most men wouldn't want you working at numbers all night. Lizzie smiled and said, well, I'm not looking for just any man. The man I fall in love with will have to be pretty special. I said, you're right about that, Lizzie. Is your wife special? She asked me. I said, yes, Lizzie. I'll tell you how special she is. When she was a kid, a bully threatened to set her hair on fire. When we were living together, she slept in a dog bed. And when she gave birth, she shot our baby out like a football. Lizzie stared at me and said, that's special. I said, yep. She said, let's have a drink to finding someone special. I said, you're on. I'm buying. She directed me to a bar called Peter's. It was loud, too, but there was a difference. In addition to the blaring rock music, it had several giant television screens with different sporting events in progress. It was a Tower of Babel, courtesy of ESPN. The three of us made our way up to the bar and wedged ourselves into a seam of humanity. I bought a round of drinks. I looked around the room. The patrons of this bar were certainly better dressed than at the Cuban bar, except for one woman who was walking toward me. She was wearing a black see-through top with no brassiere. I don't know what she was thinking. There are mirrors everywhere in New York. I'm sure she was trying to put her best foot forward. And it wasn't that she wasn't attractive. She was. But it was too reminiscent of Gallagher's Steakhouse, where they aged the beef in the front window. She looked at me and mouthed the words, hello, just as she was leaving. The bar was like a weather map of the Midwest, highly unpredictable. It was rowdy and strangely silent at the same time. We were in the center of the action, an open space in the middle of the room brimming with drunken sports enthusiasts screaming at different televisions. The corners of the bar had sofas reserved for those who wanted to make out. This one room captured everything I wanted as a man, 
beer, television, sports, sex, and sofas. For some reason, I found this terribly depressing and wanted to kill myself. A man walked by us. He stopped and looked at me, turned away, then looked at me again. He stepped into our circle. Damn, you're that guy, aren't you? Lizzie was beaming. He is. The man shook my hand. Love your work, man. Now, what were you in? Lizzie spoke up. Groundhog Day. The man kept shaking my hand. Right, right. Good to meet you. What are you doing here? Lizzie's friend answered for me. He's doing a play in town, right? Right, I said. The man furrowed his brow. You're kidding. No, I said, I'm not kidding. I'm going to do a play on Broadway. I'll be here for the next few months. Wow, the man said. You're either crazier than shit or fearless. You know there's going to be another attack. Side note. This was December 2001, only a couple months after the attacks on the World Trade Center of 9-11. The whole world was still jumpy. New York was jumpier. I said, I don't think there'll be another attack. That was a sucker punch. We're on guard now. We'll be safe. The man pulled me away from the ladies and began speaking to me urgently. Okay, here's the deal. I'm CIA, and I happen to know for a fact that an attack is imminent. I said, you're CIA? The man stared me straight in the eye. Not officially CIA, but I come from a CIA family. My father and grandfather, we go back five generations of CIA. I said, five generations goes all the way back to Mozart. That's a long time, maybe even before the American Revolution. Yep, he said, we go way back. I said, are you from New York? No, no, he said, I'm from Wisconsin. My wife and I separated. I came out here to find myself, but not in a gay way. I'm not gay. No, no, I said, I didn't think you were. So you were in the intelligence community in Wisconsin? Not directly, he said. I was in real estate. Oh, well, are you in real estate out here? No, no, I told you, I work for the CIA. I'm also trying to get some acting work. I always thought I was born to be on stage. When do you open? I told him I opened at the end of March, beginning of April. He said, I'll be there opening night. I'll bring you a dozen roses when you take your bow, unless you think that's too gay. I, I, I said, no, no, I, I, I think it's permissible. I, if you want to bring me roses, it would be very nice. He smiled and said, it's a deal then. I'll be there. Opening night with roses. And his countenance grew dark again. Unless the shit hits the fan. I said, well, in that case, there's nothing any of us can do. He shook his head. He took me by the shoulders and said, you are crazy. Or maybe just the bravest man I ever met. He hugged me and headed out the door. Lizzie retrieved me and asked what that was all about. I told her it was nothing. He was just telling me he was in the CIA. Lizzie said, he probably wasn't. There are a lot of crazy people out here. I see him all the time. I see him at the club. I see him at school. Lizzie, I said, I don't know if that's a fair sample of the population, but for the sake of argument, let's say that it is. Why do you think this place is so crazy? Lizzie thought about it for a second and said, This is the only city where you could be a nobody or a star and still walk to work. People feel anything is possible here, that a dream can come true, and if you fail... No one notices. You just pick up another dream and start working on it. 
That's all I do at the club when I dance. I make people's dreams come true. You know, if you ever want to come watch me dance, just call, and I'll have them put your name on the guest list. Lizzie, I said, I don't think I'm going to be doing that. You are up way past my bedtime. But if you and... I turned to Lizzie's friend and said, I'm sorry, I never got your name. Really, said Lizzie's friend. No, no, I missed it somehow. She offered me her hand. Linda. My name is Linda. I said, nice to meet you, Linda. I was just telling Lizzie that when the show opens, I could probably get you seats. Just let me know if that's something you'd like to do. I'd love to, said Linda. I'd never gone to a play before. I told Lizzie and Linda I had an early flight and I had to head back to the hotel. Lizzie gave me her phone number, told me to call her up when the show opened. She would like to see it. I told her I would. As I left, she called out to me, and don't forget to call. People always forget to call. I walked to the hotel with Lizzie's words about dreams turning over and over in my mind. Maybe she was right about New York that its energy didn't come from ambition, like I always thought, but from short-term memory loss. It was the city that never forgives, but always forgets. That was the key to reinvention. New York could always discard old dreams and create something to take their place. It could rise from the ashes one more time and build something new on the foundation of ruin and broken lives. There is a problem with using our dreams as goals. We only visualize the end point. We could see winning the Academy Award. We could see sitting behind a large desk with diplomas on the wall. We could see walking down the aisle with our beloved on our arm. But our eyes are not trained to see the first day of the dream. It's hard to know what that looks like. This is why so many people feel they're on the wrong path. They're always looking for the result of their actions and not what set those actions in motion. I had no idea what the first day of my dream would look like. I guess the last 24 hours had to be it. Terror, triumph, and tequila. I came to New York and I conquered. I got a major part in a major production on Broadway. I had six weeks over Christmas and New Year's to work on the role, pack my bags, and spend whatever time I could spend with Anne and the boys before leaving home for who knows how long. Victory, mixed with extraordinary loss. The result felt more like dread than triumph. It was not what I expected the first day of my dream to feel like. And then I thought, maybe this wasn't the first day. Maybe I missed it a while back. I buckled into my plane seat for the trip to Los Angeles. It was a long flight. The only magazines within reach were Sky Mall and a discarded copy of Ducks Unlimited. It was an ideal time to trace my dream back to its source. I had two other brushes with Broadway. 
There was the pummeling we got with the wake of Jamie Foster in 1982. Beth and I were unprepared. We ran the play in Hartford to rave reviews and standing ovations. We came to New York expecting the same. Our first preview was on Monday night. Monday nights on Broadway are traditionally nights off for working actors. That's when they get to see other people's shows. And this Monday, the actors on Broadway came to see our play in force. The evening was magical. We had another standing ovation. Cheers from the crowd. We went out and celebrated. The next morning, I was crossing 72nd Street in Columbus to get a Danish at a wonderful bakery called the Eclair, which, alas, is no more. And a woman stopped me on the corner and hugged me. She said, Stephen, I'm Patty Lapone. I was there last night. It was beautiful. Welcome to Broadway. I ran back to our apartment and told Beth. She started screaming and pretended to smoke a cigar. She blew out a stream of imaginary smoke and said, It's the golden days, kids. It's the golden days. Our official opening night came. We had a wonderful performance. A full house. We went to the party afterwards. Spirits were high. The sound of champagne corks were popping in the distance. They say good news travels fast. That night I learned that bad news travels faster. After about 45 minutes, I noticed some people had left. I thought that was odd. We were just getting started. We were going to party till about 2 a.m., and then all of the cast, we were going to walk over to the New York Times building and grab some papers as the reviews came out. We didn't have to wait until 2. Gilbert Parker, Beth's agent, came up to me and whispered, The Times, it's going to be bad. I stared at Gilbert with a lack of comprehension usually reserved for talking to police officers. I said, what? He said, we need to tell Beth. We need to get her out of here. I found Beth and whispered that we should leave for a while. She looked at me first with playfulness, then with terror, then with grief beyond description. We walked outside the club. It was a miserable night, even without the New York Times. It was cold and raining. Gilbert broke the news. Beth sat on the wet curb in the rain in her new dress and began crying. Gilbert, to his everlasting credit, sat beside her. He put his arm around her and whispered consolation. From that night on, I knew the greatness of a person should never be measured by what they've acquired but if they would sit with you on the curb in the rain. It was a bad night. But there were others. Just a few years before, I had faced the death of a thousand cuts with crimes of the heart. Beth had written the part of Barnett Lloyd for me when we were hoping to produce the play ourselves in a living room somewhere in Hollywood. Through a miraculous set of circumstances, Beth ended up with the real prospect of getting a New York production. We had a producer. We had a director. I was cast as Barnett. We opened in St. Louis at a pre-Broadway run, which resulted in everyone in the play getting fired by the producer. Then he fired the director. Then he realized he was better at firing people than getting the play on Broadway. He fired himself. Beth's hopes were dashed. But you can't keep a good play down. Crimes made it back to New York in a small production at the Manhattan Theater Club. The new director, Melvin Bernhardt, told Beth that I was not an automatic for Barnett. I would have to audition for him. Repeatedly. Each audition was good. Each time Melvin turned me down 
and said he wanted to see me again and wanted me to read against new people. For the next two weeks, the daily routine was audition, fail, repeat. Eventually, he found someone he wanted. I left New York feeling like a human punching bag. All of us occasionally mistake masochism for patience. But there's something almost like a death wish in my heading back to New York. My dream of going to Broadway certainly had to predate going to Broadway. What was it based on? In college, Beth and I said we always wanted to be babes on Broadway. Why? Maybe we weren't kidding. Perhaps my death struggle with my professor Joan Potter at SMU was fueled by my dream fighting back. I acted in plays as far back as I could remember. I pretended I was making movies with the other kids on our block when they wanted to play cowboys and cowboys. We never played cowboys and Indians. None of us had bows and arrows, but we all had cap guns. When did all of this start? Was it my first kiss with Marsha Housewright and my award-winning portrayal of Hansel and Gretel? Then it hit me. I had an unexpected memory of something that predated even Marsha Housewright. I was four or five years old. I was in kindergarten at Sunday school. The teacher told us the story of David and Goliath. She told us David was a shepherd watching his sheep. David was a good shepherd and was picked from many others that were older and stronger than he to be the king. Our teacher asked the boys to stand up. She said, we were all David. We were all shepherds. Let's see you boys guard the sheep. Some of the boys pretended to have machine guns at that point and started Tommy gunning the wolves. I didn't. I felt like it was evening. The sun was going down. I could feel the temperature of the air change. I heard movement in the tall grass. I held my imaginary staff more tightly and moved closer to the sound in the brush. I froze for a second, fixed on what I thought was movement. I made a quick little jab with my staff and I saw the wolf run away. It was the greatest performance of my life. Nothing I have ever done has touched it. I had no idea what the other boys were doing. They were just being silly as far as I was concerned. In my mind, this was my moment for my sheep, and I would protect them at any cost. The teacher told us we could stop and sit down. She came up to me and said, Stephen, you were a very good David. I believed you were a shepherd. I believed everything you did. No review made more of an impression than that one in kindergarten. Maybe the first day of my dream was that morning in Sunday school, where normal boundaries of time and distance vanished, and for a few moments I became someone else, not for the purposes of escape or glory, but to stand guard in the wilderness. Perhaps Broadway wasn't my true venue after all. Maybe the purpose of this adventure was to give me another chance, a chance to become an unlikely king, to fight a giant, and to write songs about the battle. I've awoken to your charms now, but I've arrived too late for the feast. I'd like to buy myself a ticket headed north by north east. Cause that's the way to your city, to your city. Thank you.
What Does the First Day of a Dream Look Like? A series of stories by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week? Yeah, uh, David, if you go to stephentobolowsky.com, you'll be able to see the single that I wrote for Kindle uh, called Cautionary Tales. It's very funny, especially if you know all the characters involved. And you can also go to tobolowskifiles.com. And I believe, David, am I correct? That's where you find my email and Twitter and Facebook and all that. And download every single episode of the Tobolowski Files. Yes, that's correct. And finally, uh, speaking of things that you've written, Stephen, I do want to point out that your book is coming out this August, The Dangerous Animals Club. It's based off of stories on the podcast and the radio show, The Tobolowski Files. Uh, So make sure you check that out wherever books are sold. Uh, so it's available for pre-order right now. The Dangerous Animals Club by Stephen Tobolowski. Pre-order it. Make sure you get your copy when it comes out in August. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Tobolowski Files. We're out. Adios. <laughs>